At this time, I will invite you to open a Bible to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. I'm going to back this up a little bit. Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. If you'd like to use one of the red Bibles found underneath the seat in front of you, today's text begins on page 871, page 871 in the red Bibles. Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. Well, 10 days ago, as you may well know, the world lost one of the most unique scientific minds that had come along, I'd say, in at least half a century or so. British theoretical physicist, cosmologist, and best-selling author Stephen Hawking. Hawking was, was a remarkable man on many fronts, not the least of which is that he lived the years 1963 to 2018, all of those years with a debilitating motor neuron disease known as ALS, or as it's most commonly called in our country, Lou Gehrig's disease. Hawking, just a little bit about his background, was, was educated a graduate of both Oxford and Cambridge. That's the Stanford and Harvard of England. He wrote or co-wrote some 17 different books, he was a, a fellow of the Royal Society, which is an awfully big deal in Great Britain, as well as the recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2009 in, in this nation. And all of that he accomplished from the familiar confines of his electric wheelchair while using a computer-based speech-generating device. Hawking died just a week and a half ago, March 15, at age 76. To call him brilliant would not be to overstate the case. Uh, Hawking was the first human being to set out a theory of cosmology explained by the general theory of relativity and quantum mechanics. He was a genius. At the same time, the Bible would not bat an eyelash at calling Stephen Hawking a fool. He was a fool because he was an atheist. And as Psalm 14.1 states it plain as day, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And I say Hawking was an atheist because, of course, if there's one thing that's certain, he's not an atheist anymore. Hawking at one point noted, we are each free to believe what we want. And it's my view that the simplest explanation is that there is no God. No one created the universe. No one directs our fate. This leads me to the profound realization that there probably is no heaven and no laughter life either. And if I may say, that's, that's maybe one of the more prophetic things he said, but not the most tragic thing that he ever said. Hawking's views on the possibility of a creator in general and his disdain for the Christian faith in particular has is, is been widely noted. I think, though, that one of the most memorable missteps he ever made was in reference to the topic of today's sermon, which is eschatology, or in our case, what the Bible says about the future. On this topic, Hawking said this, quote, if God exists, it really does not matter because there's nothing left for him to do, end quote. I'll say that again. If God exists, it really does not matter because there is nothing left for him to do. Really? Nothing left for him to do? Nothing left except to rapture the church, usher in the day of the Lord, save the nation of Israel, 
See that the gospel is preached to every people group and a thriving church is planted everywhere in this planet. Send Jesus in his glorious appearing to end the age and to defeat the Antichrist and the false prophet, to bind Satan, to resurrect the saints and reign with them for a thousand years on this earth, to finally defeat Satan in one last battle prior to casting him into the lake of fire, setting up the great white throne judgment, lifting the curse from this fallen world and ushering in the new heavens and new earth. I admit, aside from that, there's nothing left for him to do. It turns out that Hawking's statement is exactly backwards, isn't it? God does exist. That matters greatly because there's so much left for him to do. Now, today's Palm Sunday. It's a, what we call a movable feast. We call it a movable feast because it doesn't happen on the same day every year. It does happen up ahead of Jesus' Passion Week, the week of the Holy Week, the final week of Jesus' earthly life that culminates on Good Friday where Jesus went to the cross for us. Palm Sunday marks what we call Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, It's uh, an occasion that's marked by all four gospel accounts. The crowds that met Jesus on that Palm Sunday as he was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey cried out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And much to the surprise of his disciples, Jesus didn't take his seat on a throne as expected that week. Rather, he put his shoulder to a Roman torture device and shed his blood as an atoning sacrifice for sin. Jesus' followers wanted him to take up his crown, but he came to take up his cross. We'll remember that day as we gather for worship with our friends from Calvary Memorial Church at their place this coming Friday, Good Friday. One week from today, we mark Resurrection Sunday, the day that Jesus emerged from the tomb and dealt a death blow to sin and death and Satan. After his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, Jesus now is present in his uh, immediate presence in heaven, but it's of shattering importance for us to realize that now that he has ascended into heaven, that the story is far from over. Unlike the conclusion Stephen Hawking gave, there's quite a bit yet for him to do. In fact, this Palm Sunday, let's remember that the real triumphal entry into Jerusalem is yet to come. This Palm Sunday, let's remember that the real triumphal entry into Jerusalem is yet to come. It hasn't happened yet. Would you follow along with me as I read in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 44. Luke 12, 35 to 34, our Lord says this to his disciples, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service Have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at which hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us? or for all. And the Lord said, 
Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Here's the first of two points today. Point number one, Jesus Christ is coming soon. And true Christians will be found ready, waiting, and serving. Jesus Christ is coming soon, and true Christians will be found ready, waiting, and serving. Now, I'm drawing each of these descriptors from Jesus' words in verses 35 to 44. It may not seem like much, but I think you're going to find out there's more here than meets the eye as we unpack each of these words. First, Jesus Christ is coming soon, and true Christians will be found ready. True Christians will be found ready for the return of our Lord. So Jesus commands his disciples in verse 35, stay dressed for action. Now, if you have an ESV in front of you, you may notice a a footnote on that phrase, a very curious footnote if you follow it down. And what you learn is that the original words say, let your loins stay girded. That's vivid, isn't it? Can't you see why modern translators opted for this paraphrase at this point? Let your loins stay girded. What's what's he getting at? What's he driving at? Well, he's not saying anything that wouldn't have been immediately understandable to every single one of his first century listeners. They all got what he was saying, even as we don't. Um, In the ancient Near East, just about everyone, including men, wore a long, lengthy, robe-like tunic that would have descended all the way down to their feet. And while it provided for modest covering, that's true, Uh, It also made things like heavy labor and battle and running um, awkward, if not impossible. So if you're a a guy and you want to do just about anything that's going to require a little bit of freedom physically, then you are going to have to gird, literally to girdle your loins. Uh, The first step was to jack up your tunic past your knees, okay? Second step is to gather all of the extra material from your tunic in front of you. And there would have been a lot. You would have just had a lot of material right here. Then you would take that material and bring it back between your legs, pulling it up behind your backside and pulling it it firm behind your, your backside. And then finally you take the excess fabric, cross it over in front of you, and tie it into this massive knot, okay? What do you have at this point? Well, what you end up with is a great big man diaper, Once you have your diaper in place, your your loins are girded, and you're ready for action. That's the point. Ready for action. This might look silly, but they're ready for anything. And frankly, I find that most people who pay attention to biblical eschatology, what the Bible says about the future, also frequently look silly. They look silly to the culture. They look silly to many quarters of the church, but I'll tell you, they're ready. They're ready for action. They're ready for the return of the king. So as the translators of the ESV have it, stay dressed for action. It would be important to note here as well that this verb is in the perfect imperative tense, which means constant, perpetual, consistent readiness. Always stay dressed for action. And as if he hasn't always already made the case, Jesus follows that instruction with the phrase, keep your lamps burning. See that there? 
Keep your lamps burning. In other words, anytime, day or night, be prepared for the return of the king. Verse 36, he makes that plain. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So the picture, once again, is that of a a household servant who's taking care of his master's property while he's, he's away. In this case, he's away at a marriage celebration. Such feasts could go on for days, uh, even a week at a time. The servants would be left alone. And the household servant is, on the one hand, in charge of running the home in the master's absence, but he was also to be prepared to open the door to him the split second he knocked and arrived. Notice that he says in verse 38, even in that event that the master returns home, he could return the second or third watch. That means deep into the night, into the wee hours of the morning, they were to be prepared. And then he offers a a benediction twice to such faithful servants. Verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service, have them recline at table, he will come and serve them. Once again, verse 38, blessed are those servants. Why are they blessed? Well, because they're ready. Are you ready for the return of Jesus? Like if he were to choose this afternoon to return for his church and gather them and take them to himself, would you welcome such a turn of events? Or is it possible that his return would somehow wreck what you've got planned today, this next week, this next season? Is the bodily return of Jesus to this earth thrilling to you or is it threatening to you? Does it cramp your style in some significant way? I realize that this proposition is one that probably typically grows sweeter year by year. In other words, the older you are, the longer you've walked with Jesus, the more prepared you probably are for him to come. I realize that the older I get. And I realize that this also, too, probably means that the younger you are, the more um, ambivalent you might be about the return of Jesus. And as if I'm not young enough, but there are younger men and women in the room other than me, I wonder if this is something that you're not necessarily anticipating this afternoon. If that's you and you profess faith in Jesus, I want you to ask yourself, why? Why is that? Why is it that the return of Jesus today would get in the way of whatever you've got on the calendar? Jesus Christ is coming soon, and true Christians will be found ready. Not only that, but true Christians will be found waiting. Jesus Christ is coming soon, and true Christians will be found waiting. We've got to head up to verse 36 again for this word. Jesus says in verse 36, be like men who are waiting for their master to come home. Now, we've got to know something about this word waiting in the New Testament. It's not an idle word. Waiting is an action verb in the New Testament. It's an action verb in the Christian life. When you hear that we are to be waiting for our master's return, don't think waiting like you wait in line at the DMV. Don't think waiting like you're waiting on hold for your insurance company. This waiting is breathless. It's longing. It's pining. It's yearning kind of waiting. Are you waiting that way for Jesus? You say, I I think you're overselling it. Well, I I don't think so. (laughs) Romans 8.23 says, We ourselves 
who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Galatians 5.5, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Hebrews 9.28, this verse has been doing work on me this week. Hebrews 9.28, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear again a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Who gets saved according to Hebrews 9.28? Only those who are eagerly waiting for him. One more text that says it so well, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10. 1 Thessalonians 9 and 10 is a, is a picture of the entire Christian life in about a verse and a half. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica that you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That word wait there in 1 Thessalonians is more to the idea of uh, waiting up for. Waiting up for, as in stay up late for. To wait up for the return of Jesus. I wonder how many of you in the room are old enough to be parents or grandparents, have the age of kids or grandkids, uh, where you have waited up for teenagers to come home on a Friday or a Saturday night. Particularly as you wait for your girls, right? That's what Jesus is talking about here. Think over this last week of your life. Can you, can you honestly say that you have waited up for Jesus like that? Are you waiting up for him? Jesus Christ is coming soon and true Christians will be found waiting. One more, Jesus Christ is coming soon and true Christians will be found serving. He's coming soon, true Christians will be found serving. It's all over these verses. How could we miss it? Um, verses 41 to 44, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Now it's interesting, there's some discussion over who, who is Peter talking about here? What groups of people does he have in view? Is, is Peter making a distinction between the disciples and the crowd? That could be. Or is he making a distinction between the 12 apostles and the broader band of 72 disciples? My sense, by the way, that Jesus answers him here is that he's, Jesus is addressing Peter as a leader because he speaks in verse 42 of those whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. So it seems that what he is saying here is especially relevant for the apostles. It's especially relevant for those who lead in the church in any way. But it's for all believers as well. Once again, to use the language of the apostle Paul, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, you turn from God to idols to serve the living and true God. That's why we turn from our idolatry to begin with when he saved us. Another way to put it is simply to ask, what would you like to be found doing when Jesus returns? What would you like him to catch you doing? Pursuing gods or pursuing God? Remember, an idol is when God's gifts become God's. An idol is anything you'd sin in order to get or you'd sin if you don't get it. That's an idol. 
Not simply what you desire in this life, but what you demand in this life. That's idolatry. And the whole point of conversion is that we turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So what do you want to be found doing when he returns? You know, it's interesting, but Jesus compares himself to a house thief in verses 38 and 39. He's, he's still speaking with the household imagery, but he's shifting the metaphor. Look with me, verse 38. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, I always thought that was the devil, but that makes no sense at all. <laughs> If he knew what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. Here's the parallel. You must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. The thief in verse 38 runs parallel to the Son of Man in verse 39. Jesus' point is simple. When when he comes to gather his church, he's going to do so at the discretion of his Father. And not one of us knows what time that will be. Jesus Christ is coming soon, and true Christians will be found ready, waiting, and serving. Now, I I wish we could simply end the sermon right there and just give further practical example after example of what it looks like to be ready, to be waiting, to be serving. I wish we could do that, but that's not what Jesus does. So before we wrap up this morning, we're wise to follow Jesus' teaching to the end of this topic. The first point is a portrait of who, by God's grace, we want to be in view of Jesus' return, ready, waiting, serving. The second point is a warning to every person who professes faith in Christ, but in point of fact does not possess faith in Christ, because Jesus Christ is coming soon, and false converts will be found scoffing, sinning, and suffering. Jesus Christ is coming soon, and false converts will be found scoffing, sinning, and suffering. Look with me, if you would, once more, Luke chapter 12, this time verses 45 to 48. Luke 12, beginning in verse 45. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. It is fascinating. In these four verses here, Jesus speaks of three different servants, doesn't he? And we'll distinguish each one from another in a moment. But in the broader context, and in verse 48 in particular, Jesus makes it clear these folks are all professing Christ followers. Every last one of them. Not only that, they are people who profess faith in Christ, but they do not genuinely possess faith in Christ. They are false converts, in other words, each one of them. But they're all identified by certain markers, so let's look briefly at each one. First, scoffing. Scoffing. Jesus Christ is coming soon, and false converts will be found scoffing. So in verse 45, Jesus reveals the internal thoughts 
of the first of these false converts, verse 45, Jesus says, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming. Let's just, let's just hold that up right there. What is this? Well, if you put this together with the reading from 2 Peter, this is, this is scoffing. And what is scoffing? Well, scoffing is an attitude marked by contempt. It's cynicism. It's disdain. It's even ridicule. We heard it read for us earlier, 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4, where the apostle writes, know this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? You hear it? My master is delayed in coming. This is the posture of the scoffer. And I hate to say it, but it is the posture increasingly of evangelical Christianity. I see it nearly everywhere I look, especially folks my age and younger in the church. It is increasingly cruel to minimize eschatology, what the Bible says about the last days. Not only minimize it, but to make light of those who regard the study of the end times as something that is valuable. I see it constantly. But don't take my word for it. If you want to hear a couple of elder statesmen in the church who I think have some street cred in this church, listen, listen to this. Um, the, these first words come from John Piper. Piper spoke these words at the 2015 Gospel National, uh, National Gospel Coalition Conference, and I could tell you exactly where I was standing in my kitchen when I first heard these words because I believe them down to my toes even more so today. Nearly three years ago, Piper said this, if you don't get all of his references here, that's okay. I think you'll get the gist. Quote, many evangelicals in my generation, that's Piper's generation, so he's, he's 71 now. Many evangelicals in my generation have held dispensational eschatological charts in such derision that they have been virtually paralyzed in their study of prophecy. For two generations, perhaps, we have failed to study prophecy with anything like the rigor it deserves. We have been so afraid of being viewed as one of those Zionist, right-wing, antichrist-sniffing, culture-denying, alarmist leftovers from the Schofield Prophecy Conference era that we hardly give any energy to putting the prophetic pieces together, at least not in public. Now, he says more, but I'll, I'll leave it there because I want to quote somebody else. That was John Piper. This next word comes from his friend, John MacArthur. And MacArthur and Piper are both heroes of mine. And if you think that Piper was direct, um, let's listen to John MacArthur. This, this came from the opening address at the Shepherds Conference in March of 2007. And hang with him here because what he says is absolutely true and absolutely devastating. And don't hold your breath, by the way, because this is all one sentence and the main verb doesn't come until 140 words in. Okay? Buckle your seatbelt. He does this intentionally. MacArthur says, quote, It is one of the strange ironies of the church and in Reformed theology that those who love the doctrine of sovereign election most supremely and most sincerely and who are most unwavering in their devotion to the glory of God, the honor of Christ, the work of the Spirit in regeneration and sanctification, the veracity and inerrancy of the Scripture, and who are most fastidious in Bible interpretation, 
who are most careful and intentionally biblical regarding categories of doctrine, who see themselves as the guardians of biblical truth and not content to be wrong at all, and who agree most heartily on the essential matters of the Christian truth so that they labor with all of their powers to examine in Berean fashion every relevant text to discern the true interpretation on all matters of divine revelation and are, there's the main verb, are, (laughs) in point of fact, in varying degrees of disinterest in applying those passions and skills to the end of the story. And content to be in a rather happy, if even playful, disagreement with regard to the vast biblical data on eschatology, as if the end didn't matter much. End quote. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but I'm just here to bear witness. In my experience, that's true. That's true. That was me until about three years ago. What the Bible says about the future, you just need to know, is not a small slice of biblical revelation. Do you know how many predictive prophecies are in the Bible? my kids were here, they'd, they'd know. I drill them on it all the time. There are 4,017 predictive prophecies in Holy Scripture. Roughly one-third of the Bible is given over to matters of biblical prophecy and eschatology, end-time study. That's too much to give away. That's far too much to give away. And it's especially too much to scoff at. So Mount Free Church, Jesus Christ is coming soon. And false converts, they will be found. They will be found scoffing. Secondly, more quickly, Jesus Christ is coming soon, false converts will be found sinning. Sinning. Jesus Christ is coming soon, false converts will be found sinning. Look with me at verses 45 and 46. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. I trust you see that what scoffing gives way to here in verse 45. Scoffing sets the table for sinning. Happens every time. Your character is attached to your convictions. Take it to the bank. Your character is attached to your convictions. If you are convinced that eschatology, end-time study, is nothing more than like trailer trash theology, if you're just convinced that it's just kind of pie in the sky by and by that cannot help but have an impact on your personal and practical holiness i assure you part of what spring-loaded the new testament church to live on such tiptoe was and a readiness for the cross and a readiness for purity and a readiness to put sin and death and to be more like jesus by the power of the holy spirit part of what so fueled them toward this goal was a passionate belief in the return of Jesus, the soon return of Jesus. Listen to Paul. Paul thought Jesus was going to come in his lifetime. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of our, and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So just as passion for the return of Christ fuels holiness, so too does a disregard for the return of Christ breed sinfulness. 
Think of the last time that you chose deliberately to sin. You were either by definition not thinking of the return of Christ or you were thinking, my Lord delays his coming. That's for sure what you were thinking, what I'm thinking when I sin deliberately. What begins with scoffing sooner or later develops into a high-handed rebellion. Jesus Christ is coming soon and false converts will be found sinning. Lastly, most frighteningly of all, Jesus Christ is coming soon. False converts will be found suffering. When I say suffering, I'm not talking about the normative suffering. That's the lot of every Christian. The Bible just guarantees that. You follow Jesus, you're going to suffer. Put your shoulder to a cross because he put his shoulder to a cross. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about normative suffering in the life of every believer. I'm talking about retributive suffering. That's the lot of every person that you thought was a Christian but it turns out wasn't. Verse 46, we already heard Jesus speaking of the coming of the servant, cutting him to pieces, putting him with the unfaithful. Verse 47 continues the theme when it says, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Notice either way, there will be a beating. And in this case, the punishment will fit the crime. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 48. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Notice how one gives way to the other. Scoffing leads to sinning, leads to suffering. Eternal suffering. Jesus Christ is coming soon and false converts will be found suffering. And for all of you that want to avoid this fate, I'll take you back to Hebrews 9.28. Hebrews 9.28 promises us that Christ has been offered once for the sins of many, for all who would ever turn from their sin and put their faith in him because he's going to return and Hebrews 9.28 says he's not coming to deal with sin. He is coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Is that you? Is that me? Well, let's review. This, is, this Palm Sunday, let's remember that the real triumphal entry into Jerusalem is yet to come. Jesus Christ is coming soon, and true Christians will be found ready, waiting, and serving. Jesus Christ is coming soon. False converts will be found scoffing, sinning, and suffering. Let's remember as a church not only to take texts like this seriously, but to discuss them with one another expectantly. As Paul says in another place when teaching on the imminent return of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, he says, what does he say? I lost my notes. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I'll tell you what, just as I said before, as I, as I survey the, the evangelical landscape around me, I have in mind particularly pastors about my age and the churches they represent. The topic of eschatology, what the Bible says about the future, that is just not grist for most people's mills. The teaching of the biblical prophets, the instruction of our Lord, the clear burden of the apostles and their associates about what's yet to come, it's not well known. And I'm pleading with you this morning is simply this, get to know it. And what do I mean? I, I mean get to know the chunk of your Bible, you know what I mean, the part that sticks together, right? From Isaiah to Malachi. <laughs> Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zechariah, 
Furthermore, get to know the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, Luke 21. We'll get there later this year, Luke 21. In addition, become a student of the futuristic prophetic burden that all of the apostles preached with in the book of Acts. Look at the sermons in the book of Acts. They're loaded with the return of Jesus. Pour over portions of the New Testament, like put the pieces of Romans 9 to 11 together, like our high schoolers have been doing at the 9 a.m. hour in this church. Pour over 1 Corinthians 15 about the nature of the resurrection and 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians and yes, even the book of Revelation, especially the book of Revelation. It's the only thing that makes sense out of all the other books that I just mentioned. And it's the only book of the Bible that carries with it this promise, Revelation 1-3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and keep what's written in it. Revelation is the only book of the Bible that comes with a promise like that. And it remains yet for so many of us a closed book, doesn't it? It's a curious arrangement of priorities and that not to be so. And as clear as I believe the Bible is on matters like these, you should just do a deep dive into these books of the Bible. We all need teachers. We all need help. This can be daunting. And if you wonder where you might get started, you could head over to our website at mountainfree.org and Listen to the sermons there, entire sermon series that walk you verse by verse through the book of Daniel or perhaps Second Thessalonians. All of these relate to biblical prophecy. So don't let anyone tell you any different. Eschatology, what the Bible says about the future, it's not a distraction from our mission. It's the very destination of our mission. This Palm Sunday, remember, the real triumphal entry into Jerusalem is yet to come. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.